I'm Anthony Fowler. I'm Viola Judah. And I'm Will Howell. And this is not another politics podcast. We have been having for at least several years, maybe more, you know, big debates in American politics about the role of government. Should the government be more involved in people's lives? Should we be spending more money on social welfare? Should there be lots of paid family leave and things like that? And a lot of people on the political left point to Europe and say, we would like to have a European style government. We'd like to have higher taxes, more redistribution. And you'd think there should be lots of scholarship on this. What, you know, what are the differences between the American style of public policy versus the European style of public policy? Why do we have what we have and they have what they have? And what would it take if we did switch to a European style of government? And what would the trade-offs be? Will, what do you think about all that? Yeah, it's a big debate. And there are lots of things that lots of people point to as kind of primitives. I think often people point to well, people's beliefs or their appetites for a large state or a small state or greater redistribution or less redistribution. And then they try to build up from there, right? Those are like the, the building blocks of an explanation. But one naturally wonders like, where do those beliefs come from? And what sustains them? Like, why do we have a belief in the United States that no, 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 you should pull yourself up by your bootstraps? So it's worth then thinking, you know, about how, where those beliefs come from and what sustains them and viola. You talk to somebody uh, who has a paper that tries to address precisely these kinds of topics. Yes, I talked to Roland Benabou from Princeton University, and in 2006 he published this paper with Jean Tirol called Belief in a Just World and Redistributive Politics. They start with an observation that there are differences between the US and Europe. They, they look a little bit more closely at the data that we have, at the facts that we have about these differences. Then they build a model that tells us a story that I think is very interesting about why we have those differences. So yeah, let's, let's listen. So can you start by telling me what motivated you to write this paper? Sure. I would say two consecutive but related set of facts. The first one is a kind of a classical question of why uh, the extent of the welfare state is so different across otherwise comparable countries, in particular the US versus Europe, but even within Europe. It's also related to the classical question of, you know, why don't the poor impose more redistribution everywhere? And I had started working and, and, and writing on that in some uh, previous papers uh, that were kind of, let's say, classical, rational, political economy explanations, but it felt like it was missing something came to the fore a second set of facts, which is that even more so perhaps than the policies are different across these countries, although strongly correlated with them, the beliefs are extremely different. So the, the when you look at international surveys and you ask people whether they think that luck or effort is more important, you get massive differences that are completely unrelated to reality. To a figure that we cite in the paper is that in the US, about 60% of the people think Effort is more important than luck and connections uh, in Europe and, 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 or let's say two thirds, one third in Europe, it's exactly the reverse. Uh, when you ask whether the poor are lazy or, uh, you know, are just trapped in their circumstances, again, there's a ratio of one to two in the proportions of people who say, yes, they're lazy or no, they're trapped in different circumstances. And when you look at the objective facts, the degree of social mobility in these countries, the amount of time that the poor work, and so on, there's just no justification for these beliefs, and yet they persist and they seem to shape policies. So that's what 
kind of led to this paper, which tries to connect the political economy of redistribution and political economy, maybe more generally, to this literature that's mostly coming originally from other disciplines that has to do with cognitive dissonance, false consciousness, belief distortions, and so on. So that's very interesting, and it definitely rings true to me. I moved to the US from Europe, and, and, and definitely when you do that, you notice that there's this strong belief in the US that hard work pays off, and you can climb the social ladder, and there's definitely much less redistribution. In your paper, you propose an explanation for those differences. Tell me about that. We have models or theories of why and how people may distort their beliefs and arrive at holding false beliefs or counterfactual beliefs in order to get the kind of facts that we just described and, and their translation in policies, you need you know, correlation at the level of countries. So you need distortions to go mostly one way in the US and mostly the other way in Europe, to make it simple. So there has to be some kind of uh, feedback mechanism. The explanation that we propose uh, is such a feedback mechanism between what is useful or functional or reassuring to believe in a given environment, for example, about whether it is about whether it is effort or luck that determines your, your fate in life, onto policy choices, specifically if enough people think that effort is really important, they even some of the poor don't want to distort effort, hope to succeed for effort, etc. So the majority will uh, vote for a low, relatively low uh, rate of redistribution, a small welfare state. And then there's a feedback from these circumstances that everybody faces to what are the type of beliefs that are adapted and functional uh, in such an environment? What do, I, what do I want to teach my children? Well, if there's very little redistribution and little safety nets, individual effort is extremely important because you know there's basically nothing else uh, that's going to help you. So it is very adaptive or functional to believe in effort. Okay? So we get this feedback where if enough people believe in effort, they implement more of a laissez-faire, low redistribution type of environment in which people are on their own. Effort is very important. Hence, motivating yourself or motivating your children to effort is very important. And that makes those beliefs adaptive. And when I say motivating yourself or motivating your children, implicitly that means that you know, either there's a gap between how much you think your children should work and how much they think they should work or they want to work. And I see you smiling. So as a parent, you can probably relate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a huge gap between what uh, I think and what my child right, thinks. <laughs> or you know, how useful is homework and, and so on. Or, or self-motivation, which is also in the, in the paper, it, you know, uh, has to do with another intrapersonal conflict, which is, you know, I know I have a tendency to give up and not persevere and things like that. And I want to motivate myself to, to not do that. This is especially important for the poor. And one way to, um, to do that is to keep thinking that, you know, it, it, it's going to pay off in the long run and that you conversely, if you give up, things are going to get even worse. So that's how you get, that's how you get the feedback that leads to one type of equilibrium which we uh, call the American dream equilibrium. And then you can kind of work things in reverse to get Euro-pessimism equilibrium. If, there's, if a lot of people think that it's all about luck and circumstances and effort is not much, doesn't play much a role, then you're going to get a high degree of redistribution. First, because it's not important to, to distort effort. And secondly, you know, just for fairness. Now, once you have a high degree of redistribution and a generous welfare state, safety net, etc. Succeeding on your own, 
whether you or your children, is much less important. And so motivating effort through beliefs is much less important. So people are going to be more cynical about um, the, the returns to effort. Okay, so that's very interesting. And I see from your story how once we develop certain set of beliefs, this, this, this entire machine gets rolling. So if we believe that the world is just, then everyone works hard. We don't need so much uh, redistribution. We don't have redistribution. We have incentives to work hard. So I, I, I get this story. How did it come about that Europe is trapped in this one equilibrium and the US is trapped in another? And I know that in game theory, we don't have very good answers to those questions, but I'm just curious about your thoughts in, this, in the context of this particular example. Uh, you know, there are various things that one can point to without, you know, being able to prove them. At some point, it was the case that America was a much more uh, socially mobile country than Europe. It was a frontier country. There was availability of land, you know, if you were uh, at least of the, of the dominant race, etc. So to some extent, the American dream at some point was true to enough people that it could take hold. Whereas at the time... Europe was still uh, more bound up in the role of inherited uh, status, uh, aristocracy, and, and so on. And in general, it was a much less uh, individualistic society. Also, with not much land that you could just go and, and you know and work on your own or, or or dig up and so on. So, at some point, I think there were um, indeed um, fundamental differences. Differences also probably through selection of migrants who came to the U.S., who were, as migrants usually are, people who do believe in, you know, in, in improving yourself through effort and sacrifice, etc. The first sacrifice being migration. So I think both in terms of the beliefs that uh, the people had and uh, in terms of the fundamental conditions, there were some differences, maybe not huge differences, but some differences that were enough to prime the pump. And then, as you said, once you prime the pump, uh, then institutions will adapt to these beliefs and then the beliefs will adapt to the institutions and you get a lot of persistence. Another historical change I think that was important in Europe was world wars and especially World War II, you know, that caused many people to become pessimistic. Uh, this is a big piece of news that tells you that the world is not just that Europe got to a much larger extent than the U.S. So um, that worked in the other direction. Initially, perhaps those differences in beliefs were justified and, and people were getting different signals about how much it is due to luck and how much it is due to hard work if I succeed. But, but at the beginning of our conversation, you said that nowadays it seems that, you know, it's equally easy or hard to succeed in Europe and in the US. So who is right and who is wrong at this point? Whose beliefs are more correct, so to speak? So, it, you know, in ter purely in terms of the model, it doesn't have to be the case that one is exactly right and the other is plain wrong. It can be that in the American-style equilibrium, people are excessively optimistic or excessively believing in the role of luck and effort, whereas in the other one, they are excessively pessimistic. But you're right that there's an asymmetry that the distortion from the mechanism that we investigate seems to be bigger on the optimistic side. Now, the recent evidence that I want to mention, you probably know, there's a paper or maybe a few papers by Alessina, Stancheva, and Tesso that have looked at people's beliefs about uh, social mobility through effort or luck in a whole bunch of countries and compared them to actual mobility. And what they find is exactly this, which is that the Europeans are a bit too pessimistic and the Americans 
are vastly too optimistic. And I'm obviously simplifying in using these words, but that I think is the, is the, is the main finding or, or a simple description of the main finding. So if you ask me who's right and who's wrong, I would say both are wrong. Uh, and sitting here in France, I do think that they are excessively pessimistic and, 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 and cynical and, and not believing enough in, in, in possibilities of um, upward mobility. But this distortion is there, but less large than the typical distortion that you find in the other direction in the US. And again, you know, behind that, there's a lot of heterogeneity. You know, in, in, in each country, you have people who are on both sides, but I'm talking here about uh, the predominant ideology. So you, usually when people are wrong, we, we sort of believe that we tell them they are wrong and then they correct their beliefs. And you, you just said that those beliefs are self-perpetuating in your model. I just would like you to reiterate uh, or, or you know, elaborate on that. So, so your model would say, if, if your model is the explanation for those differences between the US and Europe, then you, what you would say is that all those papers by Stancheva and Alzina or papers by let's say by Ratchetti, who, who, that show that actually there's very little social mobility in the US, that, that all, the, all those objective pieces of information are not necessarily going to make a difference in, in people's perceptions because they are self-motivated to keep the perceptions that they have. Is that, am I getting it right? Yes, you're getting it right. And more generally, you know, there's this big literature on motivated beliefs, beliefs that people consciously or unconsciously want to hold and maintain. Some of them are about politics, some of them are about yourself, your talent, your honesty, etc., your identity. And there's a lot of evidence by now that it's very, very hard to change such distorted beliefs with just information, okay? because it's people don't want that information, so they will either stay uninformed, or they will reject that information, they might even get angry if you get them that information. The most obvious example you know, today is, is vax or anti-vax and conspiracy theories more generally. You can throw as many facts as you want at people who have some motivation to believe these things. It's actually going to only reinforce there uh, because it corresponds to a need or a function uh, that they perceive. They will find a way of maintaining their worldview or their policy conclusions by appealing to another false fact. To go back to that paper by uh, Alessina et al., uh, if I remember correctly, they showed some of their subjects that uh, you know they were vastly overestimating uh, social mobility, like the probability that a child from the bottom quintile will make it to uh, the upper quintile. And then at the point where people were faced with this evidence, they seemed to be convinced. I'm not sure how long it lasted, but then they found other reasons why we shouldn't uh, redistribute, which is that you know it's going to be done by an inefficient, corrupt government, etc. And presumably, if sh if you show them, and that might be harder to do, that it is more efficient than they think, then they will find yet another reason that general worldview uh, should 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 remain. So if you're a politician and for some reason you don't like the equilibrium your country is trapped in and you want to change it, providing information might work a little bit, but it seems from everything that you just told me, it seems it's, it's actually not uh, very uh, likely to work. So what if they change the tax rate? What if for some reason they manage to change the tax rate? Uh, so let's say we are in the US, we increase, we make taxation more progressive and we increase redistribution. Would that have a chance of pushing us towards the European equilibrium? 
I think it would it would be a force in that direction. Now, you know how you would get there, given the equilibrium that you start with is is complicated. But yes, if let's say there are exogenous shocks to the political balance of power between rich and poor or something like that, the economic conditions change sufficiently for a sufficiently long time, then again, the beliefs will adapt. But beliefs adapt typically or in general, relatively slowly, especially if it goes through, you know, what you tell your children, unless there's a massive shock like, a, you know, a war or something like that. Those are the cases where beliefs can change or the Great Depression. And in fact, Maybe, you know, the Great Recession and, and also maybe COVID to a lesser extent, but let's say the Great Recession certainly shook some of these beliefs uh, that if you work hard, etc., you'll always get what you deserve that many Americans had. Interesting. So I want to go back a little bit to, to, to those two equilibria in your model. Which one is better? Uh, depends who you are. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Tell me more about uh, this. There is no Pareto ranking. Uh, clearly, one has high redistribution and the other has low redistribution. So uh, one tends to be better for the rich and the other uh, worse for the poor. I would say not just on purely economic grounds, but also on social judgments ground. Because if you're in an American dream kind of equilibrium and you see somebody who's poor and you think that effort is the key determinant, then you tend to conclude that they must have been lazy. Uh, and, in, and that kind of fits with that other statistic I told you at the beginning. If you're in a European type equilibrium and um, you see that someone who's poor, you know, prior to redistribution, and you think it's all about luck and connections, then you don't think that this person is more likely to be lazy. Similarly, in, in Europe, you know, the, the poor get much less stigma, but the rich don't get nearly as much prestige as they do in the US. So that, that also fits. Uh, so you can use other criteria if you're thinking about which one is going to be, which one's going to have higher GDP of, or growth, then it's going to be the U.S. one because people uh, work more for two reasons. First of all, they think that the pre-tax or pre-redistribution return is higher at effort base. And secondly, the post-tax return is higher. Okay, So for those two reasons, you'll get more work, more outputs, put it in a growth model, you can get more growth. Um, of course, they're working more, so maybe they're working too much for their own good. Uh, so do you put leisure in the welfare function or not? You know, that can change things. So, Viola, this is a theory paper. They point to empirical work, both ethnographies and survey data to motivate the theory, but it's a, it's a model. Can you walk us through, you know, how the model works? Sure. So their model relies on two important assumptions. So the first, the first assumption is that people need some extra motivation to work hard. And all else equal, they would prefer to hold beliefs that would make them work harder than they would otherwise. The second assumption is that people have some influence over the beliefs that they hold. So they are good at discounting uh, beliefs that they don't want to have, discounting information that they don't want to uh, remember. And they are very good at searching for information that somehow serves some bigger goal. Uh, so so, so they are pretty good at manipulating what they believe in. And once you have those two ingredients, the story is as follows. Uh, suppose that for some reason I have convinced myself to believe that actually hard work pays off. And whether I'm going to be rich or poor depends on how much I work and not lack or you know, some sort of external circumstances. In that world, I actually want to have low taxes. I want to have 
a tax system that's not very progressive, I don't want to have a lot of redistribution because a progressive tax system uh, discourages people from working. And I believe that work is really productive, so I should encourage people to work. And also in that world, I believe because I'm working hard, I'm going to be rich eventually, so I don't want to be taxed. And now, once we are in this world in which we have pretty flat taxation, I really have a lot of incentive to convince myself that work pays off because there's no external help coming. If I don't work hard, I'm going to be poor and there's no redistribution. On the other hand, if I convince myself that basically all the riches that might come to me are because of some luck, then I definitely want to have a redistribution. I don't want to end up poor just because I was unlucky. So I vote for a system that's highly progressive. I vote for a lot of redistribution. And once that's in place, I actually have an incentive to believe that effort doesn't matter too much because anyway, if I work very hard, I'm going to be taxed. So why would I work very hard? So in the model, they show that those two equilibria can coexist. Their interpretation is that Europe is trapped in the latter equilibrium and the US is trapped in the former equilibrium. Is it also possible to tell a very similar story where beliefs are the same, but other values are different? In the US, you know, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and the, you know, these founding fathers that are very important to us, they, they knew that the world isn't perfectly fair. They knew that, of course, hard work isn't always rewarded. But nevertheless, they preferred to live in a society where people have an incentive to work hard. And they preferred to live in a society where there's lots of productivity, even if things aren't perfectly fair. And so they set up a society in such a way to incentivize people to work hard. And in, you know, the French revolutionaries had different, different ideas about how the world should be set up. And so even though they have the same beliefs, they, you know, that maybe they all share some, some you know, view that hard work pays off to some extent, but not a perfect extent. And they just trade things off in a different way. Some, some people value more productivity. Some people value more equality. And so you end up with, with these two different societies for that reason, even though the beliefs themselves are not actually different. So I think this is actually very interesting. Uh, so I asked uh, Roland which equilibrium is better. And, and of course, as you've heard, he said, well, it depends who you are, because you cannot parallel rank those equilibria. There are some people who are better off in one equilibrium and some people who are better off in another equilibrium. So I was thinking this morning, okay, so if I want to step back and think about my own values, which equilibrium would I choose for the society if I come from some veil of ignorance and I don't know whether I'm going to be rich or poor. And of course, immediately uh, I answered myself, uh, the European equilibrium is better. And then I realized, well, it's because I lived in Europe, I grew up in Europe and I already have those incorrect beliefs. I think I truly believe that luck is very important. So, so I think you're raising a very interesting question. If, if we could somehow choose between the equilibria, which one should we choose which one represents somehow our vision of a better world? You know, I'm answering this question myself, but I think it's because of already the form, the misformed beliefs that I have. So I think it's, it's quite possible that the founding fathers or people who were first in the US, they, they, they held this belief that uh, we truly think the government should not be very present in our lives. And once you hold this belief, then of course you, you, you have to fend for yourself, and then, then you engage in this distortion of the beliefs of your children. You're like, okay, children, hard work pays off because no one is going to actually uh, help you out if you don't work hard. So, so, so I, I, think I, I, I think I'm completely in agreement with you. The question that I still cannot answer to myself is, you know, moving forward, if we buy it that you can affect those equilibrium, you can switch from one equilibrium to another perhaps, uh, or we can try, like, which equilibrium would I want to have? 
And, and, and I don't know, that's, I think, an interesting question, especially because we have those debates, as Anthony said at the beginning, like, should we be more like Europe or should the US, should Europe be more like the US? I'll defend the, the American equilibrium for just a second, especially since we had two Europeans defending the European equilibrium. I don't think, I'd like to think that I don't have irrational beliefs about, you know, about the world and about the returns to, to hard work and effort and so forth. The world is not a perfect meritocracy by any means. Luck obviously matters and, and idiosyncratic things matter a lot for people's success. I don't want to go too far along that line of argumentation. Of course, like, of course, luck matters. Nevertheless, I would like, if I thought about it from first principles, I would like to live in a world in which hard work is rewarded and innovation is rewarded. I think we as a society would be better off if people were working harder and trying to innovate and trying to improve the world that we live in and so forth. And so we'd like to incentivize that. I'm willing to accept some, you know, some slight increase in uh, inequality in exchange for uh, more meritocracy. And I, I could, I suspect that there are a lot of Americans who essentially agree with me. You know, it's not that they irrationally think that they are going to become billionaires. I don't think that's what motivates everybody, but they, but, but I think they do believe that Jeff Bezos should be rewarded for working really hard and providing lots of, uh, you know, free, free delivery on, you know, cheap items to lots of people. And, and he should be rewarded for all of that hard work. And that's the kind of society that we'd like to live in, even though, you know, of course we know it comes along with some extra bit of inequality. Another defense of the American equilibrium is a purely pragmatic one, which is we're making this trade off between overall productivity and inequality. And obviously, you know, people are free to make that trade off wherever they want. It's not obvious that there's one right place to draw that line. And in fact, if you did take a country that has a lot more equality than the US and that we think has that, that good, good European outcome, if you took the, you know, the median person from that society, they might be delighted to be in the 30th percentile in the US. You know what I mean? So like if you actually just thought about like overall, overall quality of life and spending ability and so forth, if you look at, you know, I think, I think, I think you'd actually be have, you know, be hard pressed to say that you'd really rather live in lots of European countries than the US if I was going to give you a random draw of where you fall in the income distribution. Um, so that's, that's a purely pragmatic one. Obviously, people are free to draw that trade off wherever they want. But in terms of actual quality of life and actual consumption ability and so forth, like the US is doing pretty well. But it's, it's, it might be impossible to achieve that quality of life without having some amount of inequality and some, you know, strong incentive for people to work hard. There's Anthony. He's sitting there and he has these views. And now let's insert, if we could, Anthony into their model and to say, all right, there's now going to be a signal that's directed to him that's of the form, you know what? Luck actually plays a huge role. You've underestimated how big of a role or, or you've underestimated how much inequality there is or right, this thing cuts against those claims that you have, right? Why isn't that information, the, the careful report that shows in great detail that it turns out we in the United States are in fact no better off by virtue of our current tax policy in, in supporting upward mobility of individual citizens than are the Europeans with all their socialism. Why doesn't Anthony change his mind in the context of the model? Yes, yeah, so so uh, you're making a very interesting point that uh, Anthony might be just one of these people trapped in this equilibrium, and he is just refusing to to process new piece of information. If you if you live in a country in which you have a very low redistribution, you really get no benefit from either changing your beliefs about whether hard work uh, pays off, or your even normative position if those are changeable, because then you have this normative dissonance. You you believe. Equality is actually very important, and you live in a country in which you see that actually equality is not prioritized. So, so Anthony has really no incentives to change his beliefs. 
if he moves to Europe, then he will be better off changing his beliefs because then he will enjoy more leisure and also he will say, well, you know, I believe equality is important and he, he would see that every day. So, yeah, that's all I have to say about Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an interesting thing. So you're an advisor to Biden and you want to say, uh, we've got to pass this multi-trillion dollar social spending bill and we got to convince the American public to get behind it. One way of doing that is by pulling up all the research done by public policy professors that show that in fact, right, you know, the role of luck or one's ability to move fr from amongst the poor to amongst to being amongst the very rich isn't necessarily going to change their views about tax policy, right? The model would say that isn't, that's not your way in. Um, if what you want to do is pass a $5 trillion social spending bill in an equilibrium in the American equilibrium that's characterized by uh, a smaller welfare state and, and um, lower tax rates. If you had a liberal dictator for a day who came in and simply changed all of policy automatically and was able to then lock it in in some particular way, right? Imagine that such a person could go in and do that, that then the beliefs would subsequently change, right? You would then see uh, updating in favor of a more progressive, precisely because the returns, right, from effort are not as great. Or put another way, the costs associated with not exerting effort are not as stark. That, that does make perfect sense. That, that starts to make the progressive movement in the U.S. make some sense, which is, you know, they're, 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 they're trying as hard as they can to push through policies that will make us look more like a European, more, you know, more socialist, bigger government kind of, uh, kind of state. With the hope that, like, once it's there, it'll be, you know, it'll be almost impossible to reverse it once you get, you know. And I think, I mean, it's essentially that that probably would be what the, that's probably what the Republicans think as well. They probably both have this view that, like, that, that is very hard to very hard to reverse that. So then there is this question of how do what what is the biggest what is the most effective way you could actually persuade people to to make the government bigger and to have more, you know, more, more social welfare spending. They should be making a more explicit argument that hard work is not rewarded. We don't live in a meritocracy. Convince people that the world is unfair, and then it'll be easier to get people on board with. I think this is actually very interesting. So, you know, I went to the internet and tried to figure out what, what are, how are they trying to sell their uh, progressive agenda that's related to tour distribution and so on. And it's funny because they, they sometimes sell the decrease in in inequality as a goal in itself. So perhaps uh, this is related to what Anthony said. Perhaps. It's about changing our view about what a just world is, and it's not. It has nothing to do with just the model itself. Uh, they also mentioned, um, you know, that the rich have uh, have have gamed the system, which might be a little bit related to the, what the model is about. But I, I do not hear too much of the narrative about, uh, you know, the fact that that luck plays a big role in generating inequality. And and I was wondering why this is the case. And the paper would have a very clear answer. It would say, well. This is not going to work. You can tell people all you want. You can show them graphs. They are not going to believe unless you somehow convince them that the progressive taxation and the, the more distributive world is here to stay. I mean, in some ways, I mean, there is a lot of bitterness against the rich, right, which is understandable. If you look at like the very richest people, it's going to be true that if, if in fact, success is, is some combination of hard work and luck, 
and then you select on the very most successful people, you select on the billionaires, they're going to have been lucky, right? <laughs> there's, there's only two ways to become super rich. It's probably, probably you worked really hard and you got really lucky. And it was probably you had both of those things working really, you know, really well for you in both, you know, in the same direction. And so anytime you look at the super successful, you'll say, yes, look at how lucky they were. On the other hand, it could also simultaneously be true that on average, hard work does really pay off. I know. So, so, so can I tell you an anecdote? So I have a six-year-old uh, right now and, you know, I want him to have a nice childhood and enjoy life and, and be happy and be a kid. And I have an American husband who is like, no, we have to engage him in a lot of extracurricular activities so that eventually he can become the best swimmer or the best piano player or whatever, because he has to get to a good college and there's no way he can get to a good college without those skills. And I think this is a very good example where Perhaps if he engages in all those activities, he will become a little bit more productive member of the society. But somehow I don't believe that will make him really so much more productive that it's worth all this investment. It's just we locked ourselves into this equilibrium, or at least my husband has those beliefs. He locked himself into those beliefs that, that, that that's the equilibrium we are in. So again, I'm not saying that you're wrong. Perhaps actually Americans have the right beliefs and all those investments that they are making and hard work is, is important and pays off. But I think it's easy to imagine a different, that, that, that the explanation is actually more in line with the paper. Have you ever wondered what goes on inside a black hole? Or why time only moves in one direction? Or what is really so weird about quantum mechanics? Then you should listen to Why This Universe. On this podcast, you'll hear about the strangest and most interesting ideas in physics, broken down by physicists Dan Hooper and Shalma Wegsman. If you want to learn about our universe from the quantum to the cosmic, you won't want to miss Why This Universe, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Do we think things are going to change in the U.S.? Do we want to make any predictions? Certainly, you know, for, you know, for two centuries plus, we've had this notion of the, of the American dream and hard work and, and, and so forth in the U.S., but I don't hear the young generation saying that. I don't hear... I don't hear my undergraduates talking about the American dream. I hear them complaining a lot that there's someone else who's more successful than they are. And it's, you know, and the other person's success is undeserved. And, uh, and what we should do is we should have special accommodations for everybody to make everyone's outcomes as equal as possible. I hear a lot of that kind of language coming from, coming from young people. Do we have any reason to think that this is going to change? Yeah, I think, look, I, there are some big forces in play. It'd be worth thinking about how they, their relevance for the model. Um, but th there are these generational differences that you're pointing to, which are, I think, I think, Anthony, are informed by things like the Great Recession. The young today don't expect to do better than their parents did, which was a fact about multiple generations for long periods of time. Rising levels of immigration and the, the, the demographics of the United States may be playing a role, the greater levels of interconnectivity between the United States and the rest of the world. I mean, like these big, big structural changes, like if you had to bet, wouldn't you? I mean, I guess I would bet that the United States government's going to look more like kind of traditional European welfare states over the next 50 years. And in fact, we have seen that the differences between them converge over the last 20 yeah, I think you're right. If we somehow could convince Americans that uh, more redistribution is coming and is here to stay, uh, if, if we are to believe the model, that would change people's perception. And, and, you know, that might explain why Republicans are so much opposed to more progressive taxation. Because, you know, once you change people's beliefs, you know, it's hard to go back. 
So it's not only our, we are losing the taxation that we that we want, but we are also losing the possibility of changing the taxation in the direction that we want sometime in the future. I was just going to raise an alternative explanation for why, you know, why does the U.S. have a relatively small government and less social spending? And why does Europe have more social spending? At least one big factor that lots of other scholars have pointed to is something along the lines of racial animus. We have a lot more racial diversity and maybe other kinds of diversity in the United States as well. We've had for many years a white majority that has that has maybe said to themselves, I don't want my tax dollars going to help these other people that I don't like. And is that an alternative explanation that has nothing to do with, you know, different beliefs about the returns to effort, but a bunch of a bunch of white Swedish people are happy to give their money to other white Swedish people. But in the US, because of those racial dynamics, and because race often does coincide with socioeconomic status, it, and it's also worth maybe maybe as a corollary, it is worth pointing out for those who would like to live in a Swedish utopia. Uh, Sweden is not super progressive in terms of immigration. It's very hard for somebody to become uh, a Swedish citizen. They are not nearly as open as the United States is. And, and you can imagine if they were, maybe they would be much less willing to redistribute their income in the way that, in, in the way that they are. So should we at least consider that as, a, as part of the calculus here? No. So, so initially, I was surprised. Why, why aren't they pushing this kind of rhetoric? And the, the, the main thing that could work would be just to impose this more redistributive system on the U.S. and then things would follow. It's clearly a, an explanation that has to be taken seriously, right? That you have... Not just, I mean, at least historically, at least higher levels of racial diversity within the United States, coupled with um, the fact that which race you are is a great, is a heck of a predictor of how well you're doing historically. That then when you talk about redistribution, then you're talking about redistributing money to people who are black and brown historically. And given the levels of animus that we observe, that that can stand in as an explanation for why we don't see higher, which is quite apart from a story about trying to filter information about the returns from labor. It's just, who do I want to help, right? Who do I want to send the marginal dollar to? Viola, do you have a bottom line on this paper? So, first of all, it did make me understand a little bit better why we might have these differences. It's sort of help me get rid of some frustration uh, as a European living in this country by choice, <laughs> which, which makes it all very complicated psychologically. But, you know, we, we, had, this conversa- we had this conversation one, uh, once about, oh, maybe, you know, we come from different normative frameworks and it's hard to talk to one another. And, and I sort of felt this way. I felt like, how can you not understand that we should redistribute more, that in the US poor people are left to their own devices and that's bad. And, and the paper let me sort of think about it more in a systematic way and understand why it might be the case that Americans express different views and, and why I might be also confused a little bit and not only that, I might have wrong beliefs. And the second way in which uh, the paper changed my view on political economy is that this is not in the interview, but, but Roland mentioned it, that you can take this model as a framework to think about a lot of issues. Once you're willing to accept that people shape their beliefs, uh, this can actually help explain the price of religion and, and you know, the stigma and of, of, of poverty and so on. And I think that's an interesting tool to have in your head. I find it depressing. (laughs) I do. I mean, I like to think that politics is about ideas and the vigorous exchange of ideas and that evidence plays an important role in it. And that when presented with evidence, people have to deal with it. And that as evidence can play, you know, it can discipline the kinds of conversations that we have, the debates that we have about matters of first order importance, having to do with the size and reach of the state, these kinds of things. And 
what we have on offer is a, a model that shows that the vast differences um, that we observe broadly between Europe and the, and the United States are born effectively of motivated reasoning. That it's, it's about selectively bringing in some facts and not bringing in others that have nothing to do with living in information silos per se, that kind of story. You know, I, I just pick friends who will just reaffirm what I already think. It's that even when presented with the information that it should, that should um, disrupt my priors, I, um, I turn away from it and I hold, and that sets in motion everything else. And, and when I think about, you know, the possibilities for progress or getting, getting, getting us out of this polarized mess that we're in right now, this is not uh, a beacon of light. It's a great paper. It's a fantastic model. But as uh, trying to find something to grab hold of, to think about how do we productively move forward? Darn it. It doesn't leave much. Yeah, that's interesting. I agree with I agree with what both of you said. I mean, I think this is a great paper. It is a classic. It it, it shapes the way we think about lots of political economy problems. As far as uh, as far as Will's pessimism, I understand it. I mean, I think it's a very interesting point that this paper makes, which is that the policies that we enact today change what we can learn in the future. And and, and in this particular setting, they can actually sort of create the self fulfilling prophecy where we you know we get stuck in a particular rut and we're we're never going to learn anything that, that that ever tells us whether or not the policy we have today is a good idea. Could we is there a better policy out there that we would all like better? We'll never know because we don't learn enough to actually figure out whether or not you know um, could hard work be rewarded under a different system and so forth. So or vice versa. So I think that's I think that's a really interesting point. I certainly share Will's pessimism in the, in, the, in the sense that I wish the world weren't like that. I wish we had better opportunities for learning about things. But given that I think this model convinced me that is the way the world works to some extent. And, and so it's useful to understand that and think about how do we, how do we navigate that and how do we make policy in light of that? I, I find that to be really interesting. And, you know, an interesting implication for political polarization, we, we should maybe we'll come back to this for in another, you know, for another episode. Um, on the one hand, you might think, this kind of thing should reduce public polarization. Like we're all subject to the same information. We're all in the same equilibrium together in a society. On the other hand, you might think uh, the stakes are that much higher. If, if, the, if the policy we implement today is going to affect what equilibrium we're in 100 years from now, then you don't want to give an inch. And so anyway, all of, that, all of that's really interesting. And I think we should probably come back to that at some point. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodup. Thanks for listening. <laughs>